0: Tonight we're moving into Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, We spent the last couple of Wednesdays that we were in Isaiah. We were looking at uh, the, like maybe the theological heart of Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53 on the suffering servant. And now we're moving into chapter 54. And really what we get from here on out to the end of the book is we get a, a mixture of Near-term and far-term hope, if, if you know what I mean by that. It, the the near-term is the Israelites coming home from Babylon to Jerusalem. That is mixed in with the far-term hope of the final kingdom of God, in which everything is perfect and no more sin and no more death. And, and those images kind of merge in Isaiah's prophecies. And so you can be reading along and you can read a verse that seems to be talking about, you know, soon the Israelites coming back from Babylon. But then the very next verse talks about something that looks like the golden age of the kingdom of God at the end. And that's just the way prophecy works. A lot of times you, you see those those two pictures kind of merged together. And that, that's really what we see, uh, the, the focus here in chapter 54 and onward. And the theme here in chapter 54 is on the rebirth, the renewal of Jerusalem, the renewal or the rebirth of Jerusalem. And what we see in the first few verses of this chapter is a command from God through Isaiah the prophet to the people of Israel to celebrate that rebirth, to, to praise God for what is going to happen in the future. Now, if you think about it, even that in itself is a call to exercise faith, isn't it? Because Isaiah is essentially asking them to join in praise and to worship and, and celebrate what hasn't happened yet. That, that takes eyes of faith to see that, that that is going to unfold, that that's going to happen, and celebrating it in advance. Uh, it's almost kind of like what we do when we sing a hymn like when we all get to heaven, right? We're we're singing with joy and celebration of something that hasn't happened yet. But our our hope is in that. Isaiah is really calling the people of Israel to do that, to celebrate the renewal, the rebirth of Jerusalem, even though from their historical standpoint, it hasn't yet unfolded. So we see in verse 1, an image of moving from barrenness to fertility, from barrenness to fertility. In verse one, he says, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. The image is of uh, a barren woman, and that idea of barrenness, there are two ways to understand it, two possible ways of understanding it in verse 1. Um, one way of understanding it is in the traditional sense of being unable to bear children, in the, in that sense of infertile or, or barren. Uh, another way of understanding it, some of the commentators go this way, is that the idea of barrenness here is the idea of more of being desolate, of being alone with the image, maybe being of a, a, an abandoned wife or a divorced wife. And that image also would seem to fit in the context because of Israel's unfaithfulness, right? So Israel has been unfaithful as a bride to the Lord. And in a sense, the Lord sent her away like in the sending away of divorce when he sent them into exile in Babylon. And so in that sense, Israel could be described as a barren or desolate woman. But in either sense, however you take it either way, they're childless. So either they have been uh, chastised, punished, sent away but now being brought back and the Lord is showing his love and his compassion to renewing a relationship with a wayward and unfaithful bride. Or the other image is of like Sarah in the Old Testament who was barren and the Lord blessed her with abundant um, blessings and being able to bear Isaac. But the image is going from barrenness of unable to bear children or haven't been able, haven't born children in the past, to now becoming one who is fruitful. And that picture, that image, is really just a metaphor. It's a picture of what God is going to do for Israel as a nation, of how He's going to bring them back from exile, from desolation, and He's going to bless them with fruitfulness and prosperity. And he's going to show his faithfulness to them again. Now, think of, just read those first three words. Sing, barren woman. That that just doesn't fit, does it? I mean, especially, whether even today, today if if you have someone who is not able to bear a child, that, that can be a very discouraging thing. Even so, in the ancient world, in the ancient world it was even taken more seriously, sometimes you were viewed as being cursed by God if you could not bear children. But Isaiah is saying, sing. You're barren. You've never born children, but sing and shout. That's the idea of what I was talking about, of of praising and singing about something that hasn't yet happened. It would be kind of like God coming to Sarah, to Abraham and Sarah before they had children, and saying, celebrate the children that you're going to have, even though you haven't had them yet sing and praise. So it is, a, it is a call to praise the Lord for what he's about to do for them. And he's going to describe in verses 2 and 3 how the people of the Lord are going to grow and spread out and multiply. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. It's a very very um, clear image, isn't it, of a smaller tent that you want to make into a bigger tent. Why? Because you need more room for more people, right? So the Lord is going to bless Israel with fruitfulness and abundance again. In verse three, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. One of the commentators I read said that in this verse right here, there is probably an intentional borrowing of the language from Genesis when God says to Jacob, spread out to the north, the south, the east, and the west. And I'm going to give you this land. So in other words, God is saying to the people of Israel who have been in exile, and while they were away in exile, they essentially had no land, right? So they were kind of like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people of Israel before they got to the promised land. They had no land, but God was promising it to them. Same thing for the children of Israel in exile in Babylon. They were removed from their land, but God is promising it to them. And not only promising it to them, but promising it to them in abundance to where they will will be able to spread out and multiply and take possession of the land. And now keep in mind that the people that are going to return from Babylon to Jerusalem are but a small remnant of what used to be there. Isaiah talks about the image of a tree that has been cut down and all that's left is a stump. But out of that stump, the tree is going to regrow. And so that very small remnant of people coming back home to Jerusalem, God's going to bless them again and they're going to be able to spread out and multiply. So God's going to restore Jerusalem Then in verses 4 through 10, he provides uh, the Lord's plans of how this is going to unfold concerning the rebirth of Jerusalem. Verses 4 through 6, we see a reaffirmation of the fact that the Lord has redeemed his people. The Lord has redeemed his people. He says, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. What God is saying is in verse four, you've gone through a time of desolation, a time of shame, a time of reproach. And that was while you were in exile under the chastening hand of God. But now God is going to redeem you. For your maker, the Lord, is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name, the holy one of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And the word there redeemer is the same word that we see in the book of Ruth, a a goel, a a re, a kinsman redeemer. It is someone like Boaz, who sees uh, a need within the family, someone who is in poverty, someone who has gone through hard times, some, someone who's been in desolation, and, and that kinsman, that, that near relative, comes in and extends grace and help and buys, redeems property that maybe has been sold. He redeems uh, freedom. For those that have been sold into slavery for poverty, it is someone who comes in and rescues by the payment of a price and restores and and frees. That's the image of God here for Israel. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. That's one of the reasons why commentators think verse 1 And talking about a barren woman is not necessarily in the sense of being physically infertile, but of being alone and having been sent away because of unfaithfulness and adultery. But now being called back by a merciful and a a compassionate God. And that's what he's doing for Israel, even though they did not deserve it. And they have been wayward and they have been unfaithful. God in compassion and mercy is calling them back and reestablishing that union that he has with his people, Israel. So he's redeemed them out of his own grace. And in light of that redemption, Isaiah reminds the people from the Lord that their time of discipline, their time of chastening is now finished. It's done for a brief moment. I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. That moment of abandonment was the exile. Now, you might think from a human perspective, that doesn't seem like a moment, right? 70 years that the people of Judah were in exile. That doesn't seem like a moment, but from the eternal perspective of God, that is a moment, isn't it? And especially when you compare the very short time of their punishment in comparison to the hundreds of years that God patiently put up with their rebellion. All that time, all those wicked kings from the time after David all the way to the time of the exile and God put up with their rebellion and and was long suffering all of that time in comparison to that, their chastening, their punishment was a moment. And now he is saying, but it's done. And I'm bringing you back. I'm going to restore you in a surge of anger, righteous anger, holy anger, a very just anger. God says, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your God, your Redeemer. So he was angry with them. Because they were sinful. He sent them away for a time, a short time, but now He is bringing them back. He is restoring them again. And then in verse uh, 9 and 10, we see a promise of the Lord's keeping them forever. He makes a promise to them. In verse 9, He says, To me, this is like the days of Noah. When I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth, so now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. That's a pretty amazing comparison, isn't it? So the promise that he's making to the people of Israel is that just like the promise that he made to Noah. After the days of the flood, Noah steps off the ark with his family And God says, look at this bow that I put in the sky, this rainbow. Every time that you see a rainbow, it is a reminder of the covenant that I've made with the whole world. That I will never again destroy the whole world in this way through a flood. And Isaiah can look back centuries upon centuries and see that that promise of God has been fulfilled. Right? Right? God has kept his word on that. Now he's saying this promise to you is just like that. And I'm going to keep my word just like I kept it to Noah and all of creation after the flood. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So this is is a a promise from God that He will not abandon them. Now, I want us to think for a moment because we've got to wrestle with something here. God says in verses 9 and 10, He's not going to rebuke Israel again. He's not going to abandon them again. He is not going to let that covenant of peace fall by the wayside again. Now, we've got to think about how history unfolded because we get to the time of Jesus, right? In the time of Jesus, what is the response of the Israelite people to Jesus? By and large, they reject him, right? And Jesus says, because you have rejected me, your house is going to be left unto you desolate. And Jerusalem is going to be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. The Romans came in in AD 70 and sacked Jerusalem, burned it, destroyed the temple. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish writer, the Jewish historian who lived at that time, says that there, the hills around Jerusalem were lined with crosses of the Romans executing Jewish people when they destroyed Jerusalem. It was a horrendous destruction and the temple in Jerusalem has not stood since then. So A.D. 70. So what I want us to think about is how, how does this promise of God not forsaking his people? How does that fit in with what we see happening in historical reality of the the Israelite people rejecting Jesus and then God's chastening hand falling on them again. I think one way of understanding it, I think I'm going to give you a couple of solutions and maybe they kind of go together. One is the concept of an Israel within an Israel that we see Paul talk about in the new Testament that, that you have within the larger people of Israel, the nation of Israel, if you will, you have God's true Israel. And with them, God has established his everlasting covenant and they will never be forsaken. That's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is that this promise of ultimate and forever peace in Jerusalem has not yet been fulfilled, but will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down, if you will. And I think there are some hints in the verses to come that point us in that future direction. That the promise that Jerusalem will never be forsaken again is a promise of the future new Jerusalem that will be established forever and ever in the kingdom of God and never to face trouble or, or destruction again. But that's something to think about because God promises that he won't forsake his people or forsake Jerusalem. The last part of the chapter is the establishment of this rebirth of Jerusalem. The establishment of the rebirth of Jerusalem. First the city and then the people. So the city in verses 11 and 12 is described. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. So the city in question is Jerusalem, isn't it? It's Jerusalem. It is the, it is the city that has been uh, abandoned, desolate. But notice the way that God says he's going to rebuild it with precious stones, precious metals. Let me ask you a question. Did that, at least in a literal way, did that ever happen for the ancient city of Jerusalem? No, it never did. The ancient city of Jerusalem was never rebuilt with rubies and, and, uh, and precious jewels. But how does John describe the new Jerusalem in Revelation? He describes it this way, doesn't he? He describes it this way with these precious stones. He says, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And he mentions some of the same precious jewels and precious stones that are mentioned here in this passage. He says the foundation stones, there were 12 different ones after the 12 sons of Israel. The 12 gates after the 12 apostles of the people of God. And they all have these different precious metals. He sees uh, streets of gold could be that John is directly drawing from the language of Isaiah here, showing us that this promise of a restored and beautiful Jerusalem, while in one sense a very small fulfillment of it was when they came back from Babylon, but a really full and final climactic fulfillment of it hasn't happened yet. And only will at the end in the kingdom of God when the new Jerusalem comes down. And then we see the people. So God's going to establish the city, establish the people. And he says, all your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. In other words, all of the people who are going to be in this city are going to be my new covenant people. God is not content just with building new structures. God's desire for a renewed and rebuilt community of God is for a community of righteousness as well. And this is really the most important part, even more important than the walls and the precious jewels of the city. This is where God's people are going to be restored into a people who know him and who are at peace with him. In righteousness, you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So it is an image of a restored people, one, restored to righteousness and holiness, but then also restored to peace and safety. And while in a small, limited degree, I think you could say that Jerusalem was that way after they returned from exile... I think ultimately you have to say this is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That a a people who is fully righteous in full harmony with the Lord and a, a city in which no one will ever be able to triumph over it again, that is the future glorious city of the new Jerusalem coming down. So that's kind of what I was saying at the beginning is, is you have Isaiah kind of merging images of a, a near-term fulfillment of Jerusalem being rebuilt, but then also I think a far-term fulfillment of a a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and in which will last forever. So you got to kind of see those two images kind of merging together in in Isaiah, and, and we have help now in understanding this because we live. 2,000 years after Christ and after the writings of the apostles, and we have the book of Revelation that shows us that many of these things that Isaiah wrote about are still to come. So we have that a little bit more clarity in being able to separate those images. Whereas when Isaiah is first giving them, it, the people would have received it probably as this is all going to happen now, and, and not seeing that this was going to be an unfolding fulfillment of the purposes of God through history. But we have the New Testament. We have some clearer revelation on that, which gives us hope, doesn't it? That gives us hope. It it shows us that the purposes of God are never thwarted, and and the purposes of God are always moving toward their ultimate goal. So we know how this is going to end up. We know the last chapter because we've read the last chapter of Revelation, right? We see that new city. We see that heavenly city coming down. We see the new heavens and the new earth And so we can sing, right? We can sing, we can praise, we can hope because we have that that picture, that promise that God has held out to us. And I think that's the the way prophecy is intended to work is God gives prophecy looking forward to help us in the present, to give us hope, to give us encouragement, to give us strength and boldness to uh, help our faith so that we can live now in the midst of a difficult world knowing that we're ultimately citizens of heaven. And that does provide hope and encouragement.